Welcome back. Uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to take today and explore Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Whenever uh, we try to self-govern ourselves, sounds kind of redundant, whenever we try to manage our own lives, our own sin life, uh, in our own flesh, that's impossible. We are not able to be completely divorced from sin. Uh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit through regeneration, Ezekiel 36 describes uh, the new heart that God gives us, a heart of flesh that's able to respond to His Word. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and through our salvation, uh, we are able to have self-control when it comes to sin and temptation. But there are times when we don't respond to the Holy Spirit as believers, and there are times when we uh, walk in our flesh, as Galatians 5, uh, today's text would have described, and we need others to help keep us in the faith. We're going to look at uh, the issue of church discipline this morning, and we're going to look at a lot of different texts. And we're going to do this in light of our upcoming congregational vote regarding a church discipline issue. And so in light of that, the staff uh, and the elders, uh, and I also agree that today is a good day uh, just to teach on it without any reference to the particular situation uh, that we'll be considering a week from today. Today uh, has no reference, not veiled, not unveiled uh, to the situation that we're going to be talking about next week. Just a general understanding of church discipline. So pray with me, and we'll open our text and learn this morning. Father, we thank you that you uh, have a heart for strays. Thank you that your word says you came to seek and to save the lost. Last week, I was driving during the Sunday school hour, and I caught eyes with a former person on our core team from 10 years ago that uh, is no longer walking with you. And, and Father, my heart uh, just ached as I prayed for this particular person and grieved uh, the life that they're walking in now apart from you. I thank you that you have a heart for restoration and deliverance. I thank you that you, like the good shepherd, leave the 99 until you find the one. I thank you that your unmistakable and undeniable heart is for those who are outside of the kingdom, the lost, those who stray, and those who wander. So I pray that we would be informed by your heart of res restoration today. I pray that we would be informed by your desire that none of these should perish apart from you. And I pray that we would apply the same sensitivity in our heart that mirrors your heart toward those who are straying. 
Give us wisdom and discernment and teach us by your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 18, in the context of children, Jesus has um, been describing um, in Matthew chapter 18, this process of, of discipline. But the context before verse 15 to see that, uh, that you don't despise one of these little ones, I tell you in heaven that their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Then he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, he doesn't lead, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine who never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And immediately following that, he gives instructions. Jesus gives these instructions to us, to the church. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on anything, on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We love that last verse. We often quote it. We often apply it to small groups and to prayer meetings and things like that. It's directly connected to the context of church discipline and to this binding and loosing and to this confrontational nature. And I don't know that um, we fully grasp the confrontational nature of Christianity in the New Testament. Just consider these passages, and I'm going to take the time to read some of these, and so if you're taking notes, uh, you can jot these references down. But I want you to take notice as you're listening to the confrontational nature in these passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-13, through 13, Paul writes, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Even though I did regret it, for I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You see the nature there? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. 
So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we're comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Another passage, 3 John 1, 9-10. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who, wants to, who want to and puts them out of the church. Another passage in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last and when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's a very difficult passage there. It wasn't that Ananias and Sapphira gave something, it's that they pretended to give it all while they held back some for themselves. They were certainly under no obligation to give it all, they just pretended as though they gave it all while holding some back. And that was the result. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, and I can't read all of this because of some of the language and the children present. But it, he writes, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you and a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. And you're arrogant about this. Shouldn't you mourn? Let the one who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if I'm present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did this thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." You see the process here. A person is removed from fellowship, uh, excommunicated from the congregation, 
so that the destruction of his flesh, handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul continues, cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate not uh, with old leaven, with malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That is, not to, not to um, associate with anyone who calls themselves a Christ follower if that person is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. He told them not even to eat with such a person. He says, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but we are to purge the evil person from among us. That's 1 Corinthians 5.13. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul is confronting those who are not working any longer. They stopped working just to wait for Jesus' return. And because they weren't working, they created a burden for the entire church. And the church had to uh, provide for them financially because they were not willing to work. So as a part of that, Paul um, gives this instruction. As for you, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with that person that they may be ashamed. Do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord rebukes those with whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. And then, of course, finally, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So you see in these um, passages, and there's probably 10 more I could have included, but you see in these passages a confrontational nature when it comes to observable sin, right? You see observable sin in a person's life, and there's the immediate recognition that sin is destructive, that sin is damaging, that sin hurts people, that sin hurts our fellowship, that sin hurts our congregation, that sin, um, unchecked, rebellious sin, all of that damages our uh, relationship with God as well. And like a, a cancer, if there is cancer in a person's body, we don't tolerate it. We remove it immediately, lest it should spread and consume a person's body. And in some ways, Scripture um, can be likened to that same thing, that once cancer takes root in a congregation, that it can spread and others can be swayed by it. So we are to be confrontational when it comes to observable sin. And there's two kind of extremes in this way. 
Some people are like, I live for confrontation, right? I love to tell people, you know, these kind of people are just strong with their words and they don't apologize to anybody. And then there's the other extreme that says, I avoid confrontation at all times possible. I recently read a, um, um, a post on social media. This girl said, why is it that so many passive men marry these overly aggressive women? And some guy responded, who else is going to tell the waitress that my steak is too rare? Uh, <laughs> So sometimes we like confrontational people, right? They help us out in a bind. Uh, We need confrontational people. We need people who are willing to take a stand against evil, especially in the world. Um, We often just don't want to be the confrontational person. So in light of our vote uh, next week, uh, I want us just to get a sense of what Jesus' teaching is without getting into the details. And I've been... um, I've been vague about this issue on purpose. Many people say, I don't even know what's going on. And that's, that's by design. Uh, if you had participated in the days of prayer and fasting, you would know that we've been praying about this issue for over two years. Um, and yet, next week we will have opportunities uh, to learn more about the situation. Um, and it'll happen on our day of prayer and fasting on Friday. Uh, there will be a small meeting Uh, Friday evening as we break the fast together that will give a little bit more detail. And then, of course, on Sunday morning after the worship service, we'll come back together for a congregational meeting uh, to vote on a church discipline issue, a church budget issue, and to talk about potentially adopting a family from Afghanistan, an immigrant uh, family as a congregation. So that's what's coming But today I just want to teach on this because many of us have really never seen church discipline. Maybe we have in some ways, but I think for two reasons. One, church discipline happens all the time and and it happens in a good, healthy way in healthy congregations. It happens all the time because it happens according to Matthew 18. In many ways, you're in fellowship with believers, uh, you're in small group with believers, you're um, in proximity to believers at work, and it's wherever you go. And so um, there is a sense of accountability built into the community. And, and when somebody is in sin, and a believer, a friend, a, 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 someone who is in a small group with them, um, lovingly confront that person, the person says, oh, you're right, I, I should not have, I blew it. I really, and they, there's confession, and there's restoration, and there's prayer. And you don't see church discipline often because it works well when practiced in this way. There's no need for it to blow up in front of the whole congregation, right? It works well in that way. And so I think that's one reason why you don't often see church discipline is because faithful Christ followers like yourselves are practicing it on a daily, weekly basis. You're sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron. You are... um, helping one another. And it seems this way that with those with whom you're in regular Christian community, that one of you is doing well at one time and one of you isn't. And in that way, you can kind of lift one another up and help each other, especially as you connect in those two to three to four kind of trusted, close relationships. We need that. It keeps us in check. It keeps sin from running rampant in our lives. But I think there's a second reason why we haven't seen church discipline. It's because I think sometimes we've seen it wrong, and so we shy away from it. 
Maybe we see it as an abuse of authority or operating in like a punitive way where we're trying to punish somebody or in a way that humiliates somebody or in a way that doesn't account for the dignity of the soul of the person. So I imagine that if we haven't seen it done in a healthy way or a redemptive way or in a way that's consistent with the tone and the spirit of Christ, I think that if it happens in that way, in a wrong way, that we shy away from it forever. And I don't think that's the case. So I want to establish a couple of basic agreements and then we're going to get back into Matthew 18. And so let me just read this statement and unpack it a little bit. Here are the the pre-statements. You and I are not above church discipline. You nor I are above church discipline. We must approach any disciplinary situation with humility and a healthy amount of fear, being careful to be as biblical as possible, as merciful as possible, and as patient as possible, knowing that the purpose of all discipline is restoration and sanctification. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a redeeming thing. It's a reconciling thing. It's a restoring thing. So number one, you and I are not above church discipline. You have to come to grips with the fact that if Moses, the guy who was face-to-face with God in proximity in Exodus 32, 33, 4 through 7, in that whole passage where Moses is walking closely with the Lord, he's up on the mountain, he's getting the, 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 um, the commandments and the law, and he's leading the people by fire and smoke and all the things. If Moses, if he experienced the severe discipline of the Lord... If King David, a man after God's own heart and the ancestor of Jesus himself and the recipient of all those promises, if he's subject to discipline, if Peter, the leader of the disciples, the leader of the apostles, a prominent leader in the early church, could be rebuked not only by Jesus, get behind me, Satan, right? Remember that? And also rebuked by Paul. Paul said in Galatians 2, I rebuked Peter to his face when he came and he wouldn't eat with certain brothers. If Peter is, if Peter, David, Moses, if all these, if that's the case for God's most used and revered and fruitful servants, then certainly it's true for you or I. I don't know who said this, but maybe five years ago, maybe eight years ago, I heard it and it resonates with me. And it, This guy said, we are never more than three days away from a potential scandal given all the right circumstances and all the right pressure and the lack of abiding in Christ. And he said, most of us operate on day two more often than we realize. Maybe I'll skip that story. So none of us are above church discipline. None of us. So we must approach any disciplinary situation with humility and a healthy fear. Um, With the measure that you use to judge others will be the measure with which it is used against you. That's Matthew 7, 1 through 5. We should also be careful to be as biblical as possible, as merciful as possible, and as patient as possible. Because we're inexperienced and many of us have not seen church discipline modeled well for us, we should be careful to take our time, be as biblical as possible. 
A few years ago, a family said they were leaving our church because we were not swift enough in pronouncing judgment and taking a congregational step. And there's a temptation for us to execute justice and judgment against someone in a way that can do more damage than good. But I think it goes against the grain of the spirit of the New Testament. Matthew 18, 14 says, It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any of these should perish. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6.39, all this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 17.12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And in John 18, 9, as Jesus is being arrested, John picks up on the fact that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of all those you gave me, I have not lost one. There is a protective, passionate guarding on the part of our Father to protect those who are straying and to keep them And it's our role as the congregation to participate in that same spirit that we should not want to lose any of those who have left us or who are in need of discipline. Because we want to make sure that we know that the purpose of all discipline is restoration and sanctification. It's not punitive, although it can feel that way. It's not a power trip for someone who's in charge, though it often looks that way. It's not hypocritical in the sense that we harshly enforce discipline on some while not enforcing discipline on another. Jesus said uh, not to try to remove the speck from somebody else's eye while there's a log in your own eye. It's not punishing as much as it is purifying. Listen, Jesus is continually cleansing the church, his body and his bride, preparing her for the wedding feast of the Lamb that will happen after the day of judgment. And so if Jesus is constantly concerned with the the condition of his bride and the condition of his body, then he is constantly seeking to purify the church. The goal of discipline is restoration. So let's get back into our primary text and, and just quickly outline how this operates in a healthy church. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. He says, your brother sins against you, you and him alone. Listen, the language here is obvious. This is personal and private. Reduced to the level of one person to another person. And it's at this level that discipline often breaks down because it's tempting to bring another person into the equation. Did I read this wrong? Maybe let me just tell you the situation and and you tell me if I did the right thing or if I heard something wrong. It's tempting to bring in a consultant or a friend or an advisor to describe the sin that took place 
and in such a way as to build kind of a coalition which violates this particular passage. I remember going uh, to play golf with a guy uh, years ago. Um, and, and on the way, I, I just felt like this person was pumping me for information about a person and sharing a situation about a person. And, and it crossed lines over and over and over again. It just felt uneasy. No matter how many times I sought to change the subject or redirect or, or not you know, tolerate it, it just continued with probing and curiosity and pumping for information. And, and, and in all these ways, it just felt wrong. And you've been in situations like that before. A former minister on staff with me in Oklahoma City, a guy named Bob, I don't know if he ever really did this or not, but he sure talked about it like he did this all the time. But he, he said, anytime somebody has a beef with somebody and they come up to me, um, I will tell them as they're talking to me, I'll just take them right over to that person and say, hey, so-and-so has an issue with you and the two of you need to work this out together and I'll leave you to it. And just, guess how many people gossiped to Bob? (laughs) Nobody, right? Nobody wants to do that if he's gonna walk you over to the person and say, hey, this person has a real issue with you and the two of you need to work this out in a godly way. The first step in any good church discipline is you and you alone Go to the one who has offended you or sinned against you. You and you alone. Who's responsible for church discipline? You are. You are. Wait, you might say, I thought that this was what the pastor did. I thought this is what you get paid to do, like to go and confront people. No, no, I'm not that way. It's not my role to get involved in every little situation within the congregation. It's not the deacon's role. It's not the elder's role. It's not your small group leader's role. It's not your prayer partner's role. Scripture is very clear, you and you alone. Is that clear? We understand it, but it's hard to practice that because we want to include people in this process. And there's a place for that, but not until there's been prayer and fasting and and confrontation between one brother or sister in Christ to another brother or sister in Christ. And when it happens like this, it's beautiful. It's beautiful when you pray over a situation and when you, you seek the Lord, please help this brother or sister repent of this particular sin. I can see it in their life and I can see it tearing them up and I can see it destroying them and God, please deliver them from this. And then that confrontational moment when they listen, the scripture says you have gained your brother. You know what that word means? It's a financial word that describes a gain. When he says you have gained him, if he listens, you have gained him, it's as though you lost a treasure temporarily, and through that confrontational prayerful process, you found the treasure again. Have you ever lost a friendship? Something that you just cherished a particular person's company, and and through a series of sin and, and maybe issues that divided the two of you, and you lost that, and then you rediscover those relationships, it's like a treasure is regained. Loving relational confrontation is the day-in, day-out mechanism for iron sharpening iron. Because we operate with the basic understanding and agreement that sin is destructive and it hurts people. 
Look at verse 16. Here's the next step. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So next in the process, in our effort to deliver a brother or sister from sin, when he or she refuses to listen to us, and we've given sufficient time and grace for prayer and fasting and for our words to take effect in the power of the Holy Spirit, this is not happening in one day, okay? This is a process, depending on the situation. At that point, then we ask another brother or sister to come along with us and to join us in the effort to restore. Now notice that Jesus gives some purpose for this step. He says, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the confrontation has to be witnessed and verified by two or more. Why? Don't we often misread a situation? <laughs> Don't we often misunderstand or misconstrue or misdiagnose a situation? We often get emotional. We take things personally when they weren't really intended to be personal or we misunderstand somebody's words. And so, so there is a real sense in which you misunderstood and that church discipline with a harsh, heavy hand is not appropriate based on a misunderstanding. And so you take two or three people with you and, and your goal is, did we all hear it the same? Did we all understand the same? Did we confront the sin issue? And is it a clear biblical issue? And did, we, and, and did they really refuse to repent based on the, what we all heard together? I've noticed in the past an exaggerated response from some people. When they relay information and they describe a confrontation, it really didn't wasn't a confrontation at all. It was just an exaggerated, they misunderstood their filter or sensitivity level was high. And so often it's a, I don't think they meant it in that way. Okay, all right, maybe not. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we misunderstand a situation and we need two or three others to come with us. In this way, Jesus instructs a careful examination of the words and the response of that individual for their own protection and dignity as well as for your verification and integrity. You understand that? Jesus instructs us to get involved in a careful examination of the words and the response of that individual for their protection and their dignity. See, we're not talking about a disposable person. There are no disposable people. We don't just throw people out willy-nilly because we're offended. It's a process that requires time and prayer and effort and caution. <clears throat> Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. By the way, Jesus only mentions the word church three times in the Gospels. Two of them are here, and it's the word assembly. It was a secular word. Uh, there, the word ecclesia was around long before Jesus instituted the church. It would have been common in any Roman city, any Roman town, any town in the, in the, in the Greek area. It, it would have been just common to have an assembly, to have a group of people meeting together. 
And so the level of church discipline only revolves in verse 17 after a personal confrontation, after a small group confrontation, take the issue to the wider assembly of believers. And Jesus gives us a hint about that when he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Tell it to the assembly. Tell it to the gathered group of believers, whether it's a small group or whether it's on this particular level of congregational discipline. This is the place for consequences, all right? Notice that in first step, there's not a real consequence. Notice that in the second place, there's not even a real place for consequences. At this point, there's no action taken other than the pleading and the praying and the fasting and the trying to convince the brother or sister in Christ to repent of this sin that's destroying them. And then at that point, verse 17, the third step, the last step, is the consequence. Let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector if they refuse. This is probably the process where Paul said, hand this one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, have nothing to do with them in the Second Thessalonians 3 passage. In all those ways, the consequences come last. They come at the end of the process, and the part that leads up to that consequence is prayerful, careful, biblical, merciful, and all those ways that we've described it, mimicking the tone of, of God in the New Testament, that none of those who have come to him should perish away. It's a last, um, a, a last resort. This is the place for consequences. Up until that point, there's not a pulling away. There's not a punitive effort. But here Jesus calls for consequences. What are the consequences? He says, treat that person like a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm confused about this a little bit. And I've been confused for a few weeks. You can ask Cherie, you can ask the elders. I don't know what this means necessarily. But here's, here's what I think it means. But let me give you the two options of what it could mean. Because it's important. What could it mean? Is Jesus talking about the way he treated Gentiles and tax collectors? Because he was super kind to Gentiles and tax collectors. Is that what he's telling us to do? And you, the way you've seen me treat a Gentile and a tax collector, that's what you should do to this person in discipline. Well, what's the, what's the result of it if it's that way? Jesus brought in um, tax collectors and sinners. He was accused of being a friend of sinners. He, he treated them with love and respect and dignity, and he, he honored them. And, and in many ways, he, uh, his approach to them was to share the love of God and the, the gospel of grace. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. His desire was restoration and to bring them into his kingdom if it is taken in that way. But I, I don't necessarily think it is that way. I think he might mean the second way. He's talking to people who understood a culture and the culture that he was talking to said to treat that person like a Gentile and a tax collector meant to put them outside of their circle of fellowship to treat them as they were uh, an, an enemy of the gospel. And I think in many ways this makes sense, and it's a good rendering of this passage, to treat this person as an outsider to the faith. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because if the person was in faith in Christ, and if they had come to faith in Christ, they came to Christ, listen closely, they came to Christ because they had a sin issue, 
And they came to Christ first because they needed cleansing from their sin, forgiveness from their sin. Jesus took the punishment for sin. And so if they're now, years later, persisting in sin and they refuse to repent, then the very thing that caused them to come to faith in Christ is the very thing that they're now practicing and pursuing, which is sin. But if that person was in the faith, they would have responded to those first steps of godly confrontation. How? With grief. Godly grief produces repentance. They would have responded with faith. They would have responded with, with repentance. How many of us have been confronted by a believer about an issue that we knew we were wrong and we knew that we were sinful and we just said, you're right. You're right, I blew it. I should not have said that. I was wrong in my words, I was wrong in my actions, and will you forgive me? That sort of godly interaction happens all the time. And it's, it's beautiful because a person who is in faith knows that the worst thing could be that they could violate their conscience or they could violate um, you know, their relationship with the Lord Jesus and that it could have consequences in the church. But if that person doesn't respond with remorse or confession or repentance or any kind of change, they've hardened their heart through steps one, two, and three. So if they've hardened their heart through all those steps, at that point we treat them as though they were never saved to begin with, which includes praying for their salvation, which includes sharing the gospel with somebody, which includes loving them without approving of their sin. Does that make sense? Verses 18 through 20, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on heaven. If you agree, if two of you agree on anything, uh, they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. All this is in context of church discipline. Jesus is saying, listen, if you've gone through this whole process with somebody, and I've watched you go through this process with uh, confronting sin and, and, and praying over a person and trying to get them to, I agree with you, if you, if you do this on earth, then I agree with you in heaven. I, I have watched you through the process and I've seen the way you've done this. We have Jesus' approval when we operate in this sort of a godly way. It's a remarkable statement of our God-given and our God-ordained ability to self-govern to some degree with the help of the Holy Spirit. Essentially, if we agree on this step of discipline, then it shall be confirmed by the king and shall be done according to your judgment. And this is consistent with other scripture. Paul told the Corinthians, you know, you're to judge each other. Don't go take lawsuits amongst, you know, a, a secular court. When one of you has a grievance against another, why do you go to the law before the unrighteous instead of before the saints? Do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you know, not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And so it is within the scope of our ecclesiology, it's within the scope of our gathering as a body of believers to be confrontational when it comes to sin. And I'm not above it, and you're not above it. And if there's observable sin in our life, whether it be gossip or idolatry or greed or immorality or drunkenness or any of those things, all of us should be at a place where we're welcoming 
that confrontation. Why? What greater love is there than to experience this sort of discipline? It's a loving thing to confront somebody. It's a loving thing to exercise discipline. The most unloving thing to do, according to Scripture, is not to discipline your children. Hebrews 12 says that no discipline seems pleasant but painful. But in the end, it yields a fruit of righteousness to those who are taught by it. Listen, you want to be soft and teachable and you, want to be, you don't want to be anti-confrontational. If, if, if there's no one in your life who can confront you and you're not willing to uh, respond to them, it's a red flag and it's a blind spot in your life. You and I have to be willing to be confronted and we have to be willing to listen to the truth and to listen to it from the heart of a person who loves the Lord and who loves you well. So we should confront in fear and humility rather than pride and arrogance. We should confront for the purpose of restoration and redemption. And we should confront with the heart of Jesus. Let me close with this story. Um, This guy named Justin and I have been meeting off and on over the past few months. And I heard his story and I asked him to type it up and to, to share so I could share it with you. Um, he said, uh, Pastor Gibson and I have recently gotten to know each other uh, through the BMCE. It's a local group of pastors. And um, he found out that I have gone through a church discipline situation and he thought it would be helpful for you to hear my story. I grew up in a Christian home and became a follower of Jesus at age eight. In 1994, when I was 12, my mother had a nervous breakdown, was hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar II disorder. She received medication and got involved in the life of the church and through consistent life patterns, she was stabilized uh, until 2005 when I was 23 years old and newly married. But at that point, she refused to take all medication and all of her condition and behaviors grew worse. He says, my father and my brother and I and the local church all tried to intervene and to get her help. We addressed her need for medication, for clear boundaries, for maturity, etc. He said, my father and mother were members of a local church and were under the authority of their church leadership. But my mother often refused to get the help that she needed and she began destroying relationships either directly with hurtful words and actions or indirectly with poor decisions. We sought out Christian counselors and family interventions, but she would not listen to her family. She would not listen to her friends and she refused to listen to the church leadership. And so at some point they began to institute this level of church discipline. All the while she continued to rebel. The church followed the biblical model of church discipline found in Matthew 18. And eventually, my mother became isolated from all those around her. The isolation by her family and her church was intended to draw her back to Christ, to receive the medical help and the care that she needed for her disorder, and to fully restore her to her husband and to her family and to her church. He says, my father's role in all of this complicated matters adding more strain to the family relationship. At some point, he just got tired of the situation. And it says, in 2006, he kicked out my mother. 
He kicked my mother out of the family home, and she spent a period of time homeless. Initially, it was extremely painful for me as her son. Living out church discipline in this way seemed mean and unloving at different points. But over time, I began to realize that it was for my mother's good. I myself had had to call the police on her when she would not respect certain boundaries. I had to refuse her phone calls at many times and to protect my children and to keep my children away from her for long stretches of time. There were difficult times when she would just not listen and she continued to do whatever she wanted to do and loving her became increasingly difficult. She was in and out of psychiatric hospitals, local prisons, and eventually in 2013 landed in a Pennsylvania state prison because of all of her choices and her stubborn behaviors. Lawyers, judges, many others were baffled by her self-destructive behavior. She had burned every single bridge with every single friend and every single family member. She was blind to her own sin and she refused to walk in anything resembling a biblical way. And I wrestled with what would Jesus do if he were here? How would he love my mother? What would he say to her? How would he love her? And what boundaries would he put in place in her life? The process of biblical discipline was painfully hard and exhausting. But I made sure to always leave the door open for her to return into my life. I maintained a distant relationship with my mother through occasional phone calls, letters, hospital, prison visits, but I would not support or tolerate the choices that she was making. I pointed her to Jesus, encouraging her in her need for God's grace, trying to get her all the help she needed medically, psychiatrically, um, spiritually, and all the support she needed. I spoke lovingly and honestly with her, and I waited and prayed for God to move. Most of the time, she refused all the help, but I still prayed that the consistent boundaries that we had set, the honest truth that we weren't going to tolerate her sin, and the relentless love that I was trying to demonstrate would point her back to Jesus. In 2014, my mother left state prison and was put on parole 45 minutes away from my house. My wife and I were the only family left that would even talk to her or help her. My father had long since filed for divorce and completely isolated himself from her. My brother refused to interact with her, keeping his family completely detached from her. Finally, my mother was open to receiving help. The Lord had opened the door just a crack for which I had longed for and prayed for. And after serving a short time on parole, she would be released with no housing, limited resource, resources, and literally no one to help her. My wife and I realized that we had to be the hands and feet of Jesus despite the past hurt and pain that she had caused and the other responsibilities that we had in our life at that time. If not for the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we would be in the same situation as my mother. The Lord helped us find her an apartment and a connection to a local church in Lancaster where she could be under the authority of a local body of elders. We met with those pastors and clearly told them her whole story and how she needed accountability, encouragement, and reconciliation with her family. Over the next three and a half years, the Holy Spirit worked in my mom's heart and changed her. It wasn't a smooth road. There were often setbacks. And despite all of her challenges with her bipolar disorder, she received the medical care 
She submitted to the local church leadership and was even baptized. Tears of joy still flood my heart and my eyes when I think about that glorious baptism day in 2015. The last few years of her life were redemptive. Even with a few setbacks, she finally enjoyed time with her grandchildren. She cooked big meals and was friendly with her neighbors. In the spring of 2018, my mother died unexpectedly of a massive heart attack. Now that she is with the Lord, I can truly live in the Lord's peace that my wife and I loved her well and pointed her to Christ, even with the discipline and the boundaries that we had set. Even though it was hard, we don't regret for a moment putting forth the effort and the energy to love her like Jesus. Even when we were the only ones loving her, the Holy Spirit filled us with endurance. We knew Jesus' love in a new and deep way as we learned to love like him. And we're so thankful that her burdens were finally lifted. She is fully restored. What the church was not able to fully accomplish through discipline, Jesus repaired completely in heaven. The Lord redeemed a difficult situation in my family that lasted decades. These trials were taxing. Church discipline is not quick, nor is it tidy and neat. And the purpose is the restoration of fallen members, strengthening of the church, and the glorifying of God. I will pray for you and your congregation during this difficult time as you seek to bring glory to God and love like Jesus during hard times. I appreciate Justin's letter, and I, I, um, I see in it a willingness to do something difficult but right that has the results that we all desire, and that is reconciliation, restoration, Redemption, the glory of God. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. uh, And I'm going to invite you to pray that the Lord would bring restoration and reconciliation. That as we engage in this process and as more details come out in the next week or so, that you would carry with it a heart of grace and compassion and mercy, respecting the dignity of the one who is running and asking the Lord, by His mercy and grace, that this one should be restored. And that none of us would be in a position where church discipline gets to this level for, for, for us as well. Father, we thank You for Your Word. You see more than we do. You know more than we do. You see further down the road than we do. And often we just, we don't want to be confrontational. And we don't want to take a firm stand. And sometimes that has to do with the fact that we also are sinners. Sometimes it has to do with the fact that we don't want to come across as self-righteous or judgy. And some of, the, some of it just comes down to that we just don't know how to do this well. We've never seen it modeled well before us. So Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace and the wisdom and the discernment as we enter into this week and we're, we're going into a day of prayer and fasting for our congregation on Friday, we pray that you would bring restoration and reconciliation. We pray that before the vote next Sunday morning, that this one would be repentant and come to their senses, that we may not have to go through with this at all. Would you give us all a passion to pray for this one all week long, that you would do a work for your own glory and for this person's restoration that they may come to their senses 
and that their soul may be eternally saved. Give us wisdom as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.